So you married someone older. Yep. He didn't have my problems. You know, I was his problem. He was my solution. I had a lot of fear and anger and defensiveness that I was bringing into the dating and relationship process, and it was interfering with loving someone. I think you do have to be friends, and it's hard to be a friend with somebody that's really angry. Well, this is Dr. Phil, which means you found your way to fill in the blanks, and I'm very excited today because I am with Tracy McMillan. She is an author, she's a television writer, and she is a relationship expert, which comes at a really good time because we have just done a relationship series that I just finished. I called it Relationship Reality Check, subtitled, How Much Fun Are You to Live With?, And I'm going to tell you a whole lot more about her in 40 seconds. Speaking of relationship issues, I want to tell you about what's going on Tuesday on Dr. Phil. We have an episode called Breakup Breakdown. Now, Melanie emailed me saying that her relationship with her 15-year-old daughter, Elena, is strained because Elena is just disobedient, grouchy, and mean since her boyfriend broke up with her. And Elena admits she's miserable and says she's disappointed she didn't do enough to keep him. Then LaTanya emailed me saying she was pursuing her dreams in a big city and everything was going her way until her boyfriend, Randy, cheated and then dumped her. Randy admits he was seeing several women and that he was never LaTanya's boyfriend. He just made her think he was. Tune in. I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. Well, Tracy, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, you do a lot of different stuff. I have a lot. I do. I do a lot of different stuff, but it all kind of focuses around relationships and sort of like what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Well, that's why I thought this was a perfect time to do this because we just, as I said, did a relationship series called Relationship Reality Check. And when I really got into the things that you do, you're right. There's a common denominator that has to do with the human experience and relationships and also with your relationship with yourself. Exactly. So people know you're also a television screenwriter, and you've done Mad Men and Good Girls Revolt, Marvel's Runaways, which is great, by the way, Mm -hmm. United States of Terror, which I found really intriguing from a psychological standpoint. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very authentically done, Mm -hmm. and I just thought it was engaging. Necessary Roughness, you've even written for the NBC Nightly News. So That's right. You've kind of done it all, and you've written yeah. books. Why You're Not Married Yet, i got to hear about this. <laughs> I love you, and I'm leaving you anyway. I just want to hear kind of more about that. What do you find the most fulfilling out of what you do? Does anything jump out over the others? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think the relationship piece is the piece that I would do I mean, I would do it all. Even if I won the lottery, I would still want to write television. Yeah. But the thing that I do for free and for fun is to help people with their relationships and to help people know that the building block of a great relationship is having a great relationship with yourself. And that once you're in a relationship, it's really more about what you can give than what you can get. When did you decide that you were focused on this in your life in your evolution? (laughs) I want to say sometime around my third divorce. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I came to coaching people into relationships 
by trial and error. I'm a little bit of a jailhouse lawyer. Like yeah. I've had all kinds of life experiences that led me into relationships that then everything I had to do to put myself back together, I share with other people. I've been doing this for 45 years and I tell people, if you are getting ready to get into a new relationship, mm -hmm. you should never do it if you don't do an autopsy on the relationship you just got out of. Right. And an autopsy on what you did. That's right. That brought it down. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it was a relationship that needed to end, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's necessarily toxic. Right. But if it ran off in the ditch or it just reached its natural end or whatever, you need to look at it and see what you did what role you played. Right. Do you subscribe to that theory? Absolutely. Because you can find a new person, but you're still the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So just moving locations and swapping out one partner for another partner does not actually solve your problems. Yeah. And I think that's what I had to come to is like, I had been in, you know, all these relationships and I had to come to the conclusion that it was me. And then it was, well, what is it about me? Well, it's not that I'm a bad person. It's that there are ways of being in relationships and things I did not understand quite yet that I needed to learn, that I needed to learn. When you got into your first relationship, did you consider your early life as having damaged who you were? Because you were in foster care. You had a lot of experiences that yeah. Most people have a hard time relating to if they haven't been through it. That's right. I mean, I am still working my way through those experiences. That's the thing. You know, when you're young, you think life is linear and you're going to put something behind you and that's it. And in fact, life is both circular and a zigzag. Everything, you, you know, it's like, you, it's not a straight line. And then everything you experience, you're going to experience it again, except hopefully you're further up the mountain this time. So when I got into my first relationship, no, it never occurred to me. My whole plan was, I'm just going to get away from my childhood and put that behind me and never look back. Yeah. And that's not how it worked. It doesn't work that way. And I knew who to pick. Like I could look around and see, oh, I need somebody from a good family. I needed somebody who was like a solid person. Now I know that would be like securely attached. I would understand that as an attachment um, thing. He was a great guy, but that didn't mean I had the skills to be in a relationship. And I got married for the first time at 19. Right. And I want people to hear, particularly in looking back, what impact you think it had on you because you talk about the fact that your mother abandoned you. Mm -hmm. And that's why I guess you wound up in foster care, of course. But your father was not an exemplary citizen. That's right. Right. He was yeah. a pimp and a drug dealer. That's right. And spent a lot of time in prison. Most of my life. Really? Do you have a relationship with him yeah, now? Yeah, I do. And in, it, interestingly, you know, every people have complex stories, and mine's complex. My mother gave me up for the first time at three months. I was in foster care until 18 months. And when I got out, I went to live with my dad, and my dad became my mother. And my dad, interesting, is a very kind of solid person in this one way. Now, he was a criminal, and he started going to prison and kept going to prison, but he's actually a pretty good primary attachment figure. Right. So what that has done to I can very much see how that affected me in my relationships. In fact, men are much more 
like I have much more attachment stuff with men than I do with women. Women, I'm really, you know, my mom just gave me up. That was it. I'm more avoidantly attached to women yeah, and anxiously attached to men. And you can, and I, I'm happy to talk a lot about attachment because I think understanding that is crucial to understanding where, when people are perpetually single, I think oftentimes it's, it goes back to our, their earliest bonds. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's attachment. When you get on your own, you said you got married at 19. Yeah. But you were on your own before that. Of well, course. I went to college at 17. So my life was, I was raised in Minneapolis. Um, so I was in one foster home for four and a half years, a Lutheran minister, his wife, and their five kids. Now they had a huge impact on me. I want to say I married Pastor, um, the Pastor Carlson, my foster father, who's now passed away. I married him twice. Because I knew what a good man was, and I knew what a good family was like. The problem for me is that just finding the right person didn't resolve all that trauma that I was bringing in. So I would always feel like, oh, there's something missing here. The glue wouldn't stick. It's mm -hmm. like if you're trying to put a post-it up, but it's got a lot of dust on it. Yeah. And it would just fall right off. I could not stay in those relationships. I could do five years. I could do four years. But I would always fall off and then start looking for the person who more modeled, you know, the energy of my dad. Now, I didn't find criminals, but I found, like, my third husband was, you know, rich, white, and went to Harvard. But he delivered me the exact same experience that my dad did. So the important thing is not that I chose someone different. It's that I kept experiencing the same thing over and over. Right. So you married someone older at first. You were 19 yes. and he was 10 years older. 26, yep. Mm -hmm. MBA, so accomplished? Yes. Uh-huh. Great family. Really good, good person. And of course, he got married after me um, to a woman who has my same birthday, by the way. And he's been married to her ever since because he didn't have my problems. Yeah. He didn't have my problems. Yeah. You know, I was his problem. He was my solution, you know. Are you friendly with him? No, not at all. He has great boundaries and I wouldn't um, encroach on his life in any way. But right. I'm very grateful for the time we spent together. In fact, um, so I was 22. I went back to college. It was clear. And then he got transferred again to another city. We were living in Salt Lake City and he got transferred. And I said, you know, we don't have kids. We've been doing this five years. I'm almost graduated from college. I think I'll take it from here. And he drove me to the airport and I never saw him again. Really? That was yeah, it? Clean that break? That was it. Yeah. And then I have a my the next time I got married was maybe thirteen years later, and I was pregnant. That's a pretty big gap. It was. I I did it. I basically started over. You know, after I left my first marriage, I was twenty two. I got a college boyfriend. I got my heart broken. I started kind of living like a regular girl of my age. Yeah. And from there, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I be you know I started working in TV news. I moved to New York. I was living my sort of sex in the city dream without the sex because I, part of my thing is that relationships, I just want to be in that committed relationship. I can't tolerate the uncertainty of um, like friends with benefits or casual sex. So I would generally get with somebody and stay with them for a long time. And the, the, 
the side effect of that is that I really learned how to identify which people were good bets for long-term committed relationship. And that's really what Why You're Not Married came out of. Because I would see all these women around me and I'm like, girl, that dude will never be your husband. <laughs> like, do you not see that? And because they were coming from a a place of complete trial and error. And I was coming from a place of being a foster child who did not want to be left no matter what. Right. You know? From a woman's standpoint, is it harder today to find a guy that you can feel confident in? You write why you're not married yet. Mm-hmm. Is it harder today to find somebody that truly is a good 80% candidate that mm. checks the serious value boxes than it was 30 years ago? I mean, possibly. Definitely the marriage rate is going down. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean people aren't getting in relationships. They're just structuring them differently. I want to say people getting married, the marriage piece is an economic thing. There's been a lot of studies on this um, that the people who get married at this point are the same people who are buying houses. Mm-hmm. It's like it has to do with, um, you know, it's called assortative mating, where people of similar background, similar college education, similar uh, finances and family situations marry each other. And so I think the marriage piece, so you have to take that and put it aside. Now, are people getting into long-term committed relationships? Yes. But here's what I think, Dr. Fell. I think what happens, and I'm going to go back to the attachment piece, is that often the securely attached people choose mates and they're out of the dating pool by 35. Younger, if you're in Kansas City, you Mm -hmm. know? If you're in New York or L.A. or San Francisco or one of these places, maybe it's a little older. And then what you're left with are the people who have not necessarily, they don't want to make commitments, but they have trouble forming secure relationships. So, and because we wait so much longer to get into relationships and, you know, to get married, that to me is more where the trouble starts. Mm -hmm. But, Oh, I want to say one more thing. That said, I believe that if you want a relationship, somebody wants to have one with you. Because a person who is there to love another person and form that kind of relationship is a real value. And I think there are people out there who are looking for that. And it's, it's I don't know, it's really valuable. So I worry about people that, don't marry Mr. or Mrs. Right. They marry Mr. or Mrs. Right now. Okay. I mean, whoever's in the window, they feel like, okay, it's time for me to get married. So they just marry whoever's there on a clock. It's like, yeah. it's time for me to get married. So whoever's handy now, they do it. Well, I don't know. I think that's probably what marriage has been for the majority of human existence is like you marry somebody in your basic vicinity in your village in your world because it's time to get married so i don't actually and arranged marriages are have lots of studies have been done they're actually very functional happy relationships because people are not choosing out of their unresolved childhood traumas you know because i often think that where you have the most resonance with somebody when you get the most excited that All that is, is like, oh, hallelujah, you have just met somebody who's going to push every button you have. Yeah. And when you arrange a marriage, you don't get that. 
you're saying they don't do it based on all of your history, exactly. all of your unresolved issues. That's this right. is just somebody they pick for you. Who's appropriate. Yeah. In the eyes of your parents, just like your parents picked a school for you and a neighborhood for you. So here's the thing. When you talk about you walk by the window and you see somebody who's appropriate, in a way, I want to call this arranging your own marriage. And I think that if we could culturally support this more and just say, you know what? It does not have to be a romantic dream. It can be a good idea that you are committed to building a life with someone. What is wrong with that? Oh, I can think of a thousand things that are wrong with that. Well, what you can think of a thousand things that are wrong with um, romance marriage. So, well, that's true. But if they're, if I'm going to have to pick, I'm damn sure going to pick somebody that lights my fire when I'm with them. I don't want to be with somebody that just is comfortable. Why not, though? But here's what I want to say. Because it doesn't have to be either or. That's why not. I agree. So I think that the, the romance marriage cools down, though. But the arranged marriage no, heats it up. Doesn't. No, it doesn't. You go from a different phase of infatuation or falling in love to being in love. But that doesn't mean it cools down. It just transitions. I don't know. I hear what you're saying. And you're... I've been I, married 43 years. I know. Well, I think there's a bell curve. I think you are in the solid piece of the people who are securely attached, who find it comfortable and can stay hot for 45 years. Then there's the rest of us. So I think you're one piece of the puzzle, you know? And then I think there's there's the rest of us out here. And I represent that group. You know, I, I subscribe to the um, home perm, you know, theory, which is like, you're going to do a home perm and one third of the people are going to have no curl. One third of the people are going to have perfect curls. And one third of the people are going to look like they stuck their finger in a socket. And so what's good for you, like I can look at somebody who's been married 45 years and go, you don't know me. My thing is so much more complicated than that. So what about the rest of us? We need some models that work for the rest of us. And I'm just pitching one that I don't think it's a bad idea necessarily for some people to go, it's time, you're appropriate, I like you, we have similar values, let's do this. Yeah, I got that. But you're either going to contribute or contaminate a relationship, one of the two. You're either going to bring in all of your toxic characteristics, baggage, and open wounds, or Mm -hmm. you're not. It doesn't matter whether it's romantic or it's somebody that was a good friend and they're just going to be your lifelong good friend. You can screw it up, whatever the situation is. is. If you have self-destruct in your core DNA agenda, you're going to screw it up, whether it was arranged, romantic, random, drunk in Vegas. It doesn't matter. Wherever you find Mm -hmm. them, you're going to screw it up if you've got self-destruct in your DNA. I agree. But so what do you do that? But that doesn't preclude some people from going. This is a reasonable like this is because here's the thing. I have a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called Family or Fiance. 16 couples. Some of them are clearly in the camp that you're talking about. They're like, it was time. He's appropriate. We get along. I want a family. The clock is ticking. Let's do it. And I've come to respect those relationships more than I did. If I thought a woman married me with that criteria, I would feel really cheated. And I would think that they settled and I settled. And a woman said to me, okay, I'm going to say yes to you because 
you're handy as a pocket on a shirt. You're easy to be around. Mm -hmm. I like you. I really do. Right. And we get along well. We have some common interest. Mm -hmm. We cohabit okay. And you're going to grow on me. My response would be, no, I'm not, because <laughs> I don't want to be in a situation like you're that. Right. I would not do that in a million years, nor would I let them do it to themselves right. in a million years. My attitude is, I'd rather be healthy alone than sick with somebody else. Hmm. And if they're going to sell out and make a deal, then they're going to do it with somebody else. Because if I got to be alone, I figure I'm not a bad person to do it with. Right. I don't have to be in a relationship. I think there are many, many, many people that would agree with you. But here's the thing. There's all these people who don't find that person that you're talking about while they still have eggs. Yeah. So what are they going to do? And then there's all the people who get pregnant accidentally, because that's a, that's a time-honored tradition. <laughs> that's getting pregnant the old-fashioned way, you know? I mean, somebody only invented the pill 50 years ago. It's like... We've been people for like 200,000 years. It's not like we've caught up in any way to technology. So you're saying you would marry a best friend? No, I'm saying it should culturally, we should be having a conversation around this because I feel like we've given people one option. You find somebody that you love, that you're like desperately or like passionately in love with, that you're going to want to have sex with for the next 45 years. By the time you're basically 38 or forget it. And I don't, I'm like, we need some more models. We need some more models. So I'm just opening up to the idea that maybe that's valid. That's all. Maybe that's a valid way to go if, if your story doesn't happen. Because your story is, I got the perfect home perm. And then there's the rest of us. So, because a lot of people get divorced. They find the passionate person and then it does cool off. You know, because here's the thing. I don't know. Now, I've been in a lot of relationships. I've been in probably 11 long-term relationships. And that's to say mm -hmm. three years or more. Yeah, I've been in one. So exactly. I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of data here. I that's admit. what I'm saying. Here's what I've learned. I've learned a lot in those relationships. And sometimes what makes the best sex, if you have, if your dad's a pimp and a drug dealer, okay, what is going to be a hot relationship for you, what you are attracted to, may not be what you want to be in a lifetime committed relationship with. Yeah. On the other hand, I always say to people, if your dad, you know, worked at IBM and came home every night at six o'clock, like, go, <laughs> go to Vegas, marry a stranger, you'll probably be okay. It's a lot of, I think we have a lot of like imprinting and, you know, internal programming that draws us to certain people and if you have like my type of childhood you are going to have to go against your programming which is to say you are probably not going to be able to go to what you are the most hot for because what you are most hot for is going to be probably something that's kind of scary yeah, i can no tell doubt. you that through my experience and i'm sure many people in your audience can yeah. vouch for that too well not just my audience you wrote an article in Huffington Post, yeah. Why you're not married, yes. And it is the most viewed article on Huffington Post ever. It was for like three years. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people it resonated, and this is not something I set out to do. I was basically writing some an essay just for myself because I'm a writer. That's what I do. My point is that a lot of people found that scratch their itch yes it resonated 
with them. It was something they needed to hear. Yes. And you had more to say about it than you can put in the column inches in Huffington Post, so you wrote the book. Yes. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you get pretty specific in there. Yeah. You don't like pull any punches. And your first chapter in that book is you're a bitch. Right. And you say, what I mean by bitch is... You're angry, got a chip on your shoulder yeah, type thing. it's about anger and defensiveness. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, when I did the audio version of my book, I was like, oh, I wrote a whole book to myself. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, this is all coming from my experience. But that experience. makes it authentic, though. Of course. I Seriously. think that's why it resonated with that's people. That's right. Like, it was I'm authentic. Really talking down to anybody. I'm no. saying, look, here's what I found out about me. And then is that I had a lot of fear and anger and defensiveness that I was bringing into the dating and relationship process, and it was interfering with loving someone. And and I yes, I put it across in the sassiest possible way, but I think the part at the end that people didn't really, sometimes they missed, is that a relationship is about practicing love. It's about yoga. You know, I always say relationships are the hardest yoga you will ever do. It's not about getting something from another person. It's about confronting yourself as a person. You know, it's like a couple is the very building block of our whole society, you know? And how you are in a couple relationship is really about what our world is going to look like, you know? Sure. And in fairness, you're saying that it makes sense sometimes to marry someone that you're comfortable, compatible with, and well, I, have I have a, a lot of radical ideas, Dr. Yeah. Bill. <laughs> well, I have a formula for okay. success in a relationship, okay. and the first factor in it is that it has to be based on a solid underlying friendship. So I agree. it's not that I disagree with that aspect right. of it. I'm just saying there are other parts, and the other parts are simply it has to meet the needs of the two people involved. I agree. And so if somebody has a need for romance and sizzle and all that Mm -hmm. then okay if they don't if both of them are okay without it that's fine but i think you do have to be friends and it's hard to be a friend with somebody that's really angry that's true and your second thing is you said you're shallow Mm. what do you mean by that i think that a lot of times especially when i was younger i I and my friends, we would be very externally focused on the things that we were looking for in a partner. Like the classic example would be he has to be tall or he has to be rich or even, you know, upper middle class. And leave hair out of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't going there. All right. But, and I've never had those things. That hasn't been a big thing for me. So I could see that I had these girlfriends, like they would date a jerk who was tall. <laughs> And I would be like, why? I never understood that. Guys Um, are the same way, though. Guys are the same way. But guess what? Those people find each other. Yeah. And the the number one reason not to be that woman is because it opens you up to that man who's like, I want you to have big boobs or I want this or, you know, you got to be blonde or whatever it is. Yeah, they make really pretty babies and that's it. Yeah. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. 
The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. You said, number three, you're a slut. Yeah, well, okay. I didn't really mean slut. Well, that's, but, a, that's a big word, but let me no, say I, what I, I meant. You know Yeah, what explain I mean. what you mean so people what get I it. What I meant is that I feel like the number one thing, if somebody said, what is the number one thing in the way, in particular for women, of their relationships, to me, it's casual sex. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's not because I have a moral thing against it. I don't care. The problem is, it's casual for about three weeks. And then you're like, where's the rest of the relationship? It's like, well, he 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 said it was just gonna be friends with benefits. So once I acknowledged to myself that I actually was not capable of, friend, of friends with benefits, boy, did my dating life get clear. Like I never had to be yearning for some guy who didn't want me, you know? Yeah. I tried that like three times. I'm like, this is too painful. Well, I have this theory that if you have a good sexual relationship, it's about 10%. Right. And if you don't, it's about 90%. I have heard that. Because you can't ever get past it. Well, that's interesting. Okay, I've heard it said the other way, which, you know, my therapist said to me, um, I don't know if it's a study, but he said, people in bad relationships, sex is 85% important. People in good relationships, it's 15% important. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just takes on so much more. It's the same form. thing, so a different way. It is. Because if you have it, lot of you enjoy it, you move on to everything else. Exactly. Communication, shared experiences, da 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 If you don't, you feel rejected. Yeah. And then you go back to your number one point, you're pissed off. Yeah. And that's sad. I mean, here's the thing. I also think that people have a lot of fantasy around what sex is going to do. I think they imbue the partner with all these magical qualities around sex. I mean, one thing about becoming a sexually mature woman, and that was work, by the way, um, is that once you acquire your own relationship to yourself around sex, you bring it everywhere you go. So and suddenly it's not like Prince Charming is bequeathing me fantastic sex. It's that I'm able to create fantastic sex with the person that I'm with. And that is a huge shift. Look, when you're saying it's just casual sex, I really believe that people don't get upset about what happens in life or relationships. They get upset about their expectations being violated. Mm -hmm. If you expect that a marriage or a relationship is going to be like something in a sitcom or that you're going to come home every day and your partner is going to have some exotic array of experiences for you mm-hmm. and then you actually get married and there's bills to pay and there's jobs to do and trash to take out and you actually have some conflicts because you have to have a division of labor and sharing space and time and money people f- can freak out because they thought it was supposed to be like this when actually what they have is a pretty good relationship yeah. i think you have to manage expectations yeah. and i th- yeah and i think you have to make agreements like Any problem that comes up, any conflict that comes up, to me, is an opportunity to negotiate an agreement. Now, I think people have a hard time negotiating agreements because they have a hard time being honest with what they want from the other person. They have a hard time with being honest about how they feel. And it takes a lot of intimacy to actually say, okay, what do you need? Here's what I need Because, you know, intimacy is into me, you see. 
And some people don't want their partner to see inside of them. And some people don't want to see inside their partner. And in order to work out most conflicts, you're going to have to really go into that other person, understand what is making them tick, and start to respond from that place. And I think that's a tall order for a lot of people. You make a point in the book. You say that intensity yeah. interferes with intimacy. Yeah. That if everything is frenetic and yep. intense, that that blocks intimacy it because does. intimacy is quieter, more mm-hmm. contemplative, mm-hmm. and it's not in that infatuation phase. Yeah. It's more, it more belongs to the long-term attachment yeah. stage of the relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't need that if you're hanging from the chandelier. Right. Which happens in the right. early phase. Right. Well, I mean, I've been in relationships where the person is upset when you're, when you're downshifting. It's like getting on the freeway. You know what I mean? It's like you're in the surface streets and you're zooming around and it's really fun. You're taking corners, you know, whatever. And then you get on the freeway. You're like, okay, we're on our way to California now. It's going to be a while. And some people are like, well, what, where are the turns? What's happening? I, I want some excitement. I think stimulation is very different than um, it's like a it's like a substitute actually for making real contact with another person. And that's that expectation that I think about because I always hear people when they're first dating and even early in their marriage, they go, "Oh, we're so connected. You know, we just stay up and talk until three o'clock in the morning, and right. we think so much alike. We can finish each other's sentences." Then a year later, it's stop interrupting me, jerk. Uh-huh. It's like they were finishing my sentence. How right. cute. Now it's you're interrupting me. Right. I mean, it, everything starts to shift. Yes. You've got to understand that there are going to be changes. And yeah. I think it's still. That's normal. It still can be exciting. You can still be in love, but it is different than the infatuation phase. It is very different. And, it does, and some people just want infatuation and go from infatuation to infatuation. I say that because I used to be one of those people. Yeah, people do. As soon as it starts going into yeah. the freeway phase, yeah. they go, oh, look Never for mind. an exit ramp. Not those city miles. You say that women don't get married because they're selfish. Hmm. And if you've been single for a long time, and you're living by yourself in particular, mm-hmm. isn't that kind of built into the way you have to exist? Maybe. I mean, I think it's true for women and men. Um I mean, the thing is, is we are a society of that is very me-centered. It's very about independence. And honestly, that sort of, it's almost a religion, you know what I mean? That the self-centeredness, it just interferes with, you know, pair bonding. And um, I feel like if we had a bigger conversation about what it really means to be in a relationship, that it's really about two people sort of getting into a foxhole together and having each other's back and being in a we, not a me and another me, we'd start to sort of have more um, reasonable expectations, as you say, of what's going to happen here over the next days, weeks, and months, and years, and decades. In your show on OWN, Mm -hmm. you get these people to really ask themselves some hard questions. Yeah. To really do some examination. That's right. What's the main thing you want them to come to grips with? Oh, that's so interesting. You've got 16, right? Yeah. 
And every one of them has at least one. I mean, they all, here's the difference between season one and, and the continuation of season one is that everyone on the show in the second 16 has seen the show, which is to say they know why they're there. They came on with a plan, like we've got this issue and I want to resolve it. And they were really ready to roll up their sleeves and get to work. So that is wonderful. You know, anytime you see people who are willing to do the work to confront themselves, to like look deep into whatever's going on in their relationships, that takes a lot of courage. And I have so much respect for that process. I mean, different people have different things going on, but I would say, a lot of it falls into the category of not knowing how far, how far reaching a commitment really goes. Like you have to choose your partner and put your partner first. It can't be your best friend or your mom or, you know, your job or whatever it is. It has to be your partner. And the more you can do that, the more you are like unified, you know? What do you think some of the biggest obstacles are that you see these couples facing? Well, I think one of the classic examples is that they move really fast. They go from dating to marriage in a big hurry. And um, they don't, they're basically still in the, in the swinging from the chandeliers phase. And a lot of times their families are like, slow down. Now, oftentimes what I see, I would say the second big thing is that oftentimes the families have objections to the relationship because they see something that the couple is either unwilling or unable to see. And the family is like, we're seeing it. So when they come on the show, a lot of it, you know, they all come in, they sit down on day one and they're all in love and they're super happy about it. They're like, yay. And by the beginning of day two, they're like, what just happened? Because they get, it's like the process of being confronted by your family just unpacks all your stuff immediately. So, and it's great. If you can go through that process, we find couples that go through a three-day process, they come out of this much stronger couples, much stronger. What do their families challenge them about that's the most painful for them? Is there a theme? I mean, you know what's interesting is a lot of times the very issues that the family is having trouble with in the fiancé relationship are basically problems they installed. This is why it's so great to get the whole families together all under the same roof. It's like very fancy family um, therapy because you've got the cause of the problem and the result of the problem in the same situation. And that is not lost on the people. That is not lost. Like, you can see how her relationship with her dad has become her relationship with her fiancé. And the, fa the fiancé can see that, too. And so what that allows her to do is to maybe take some of the heat off this fiancé and go, wow, some of this is stuff I'm bringing into this relationship. And if I could resolve it with him, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be cluttering up this relationship so much. And that's some of the stuff that I help them unpack and see. When that light bulb comes on over their head. Yeah. Do you find that people know what to do, or is that a point that you think they're open to guidance, or do they find their own way down that path? I think the very first thing that happens when the light bulb goes off, I've watched it happen so many times. For example, there's an episode, episode two, where 
sometimes, you know, I've been to so much therapy in my life, so much couples therapy. Um, but And sometimes I'll just get an intuitive hit about what needs to happen, just a connection. So I asked this couple, they were fighting, she was upset, she was angry, he was trying, but he was also getting frustrated. I said, I want you guys to just take hands, face each other, and look at each other. And within 10 seconds, she burst into tears. The softness that came over her and the softness that came over him seeing her in her pain really was the next state. That was the next move. That's all that needed to happen. And they were back on track. Now, it doesn't mean their problem's over, but they're together as a couple facing that problem as opposed to now being all in this adversarial thing. Most of the couples that go through this process stay together, right? I think we're about 70 to 80%. percent hmm what we call a happy ending at family or fiance is when the result is in the highest good of everybody involved. And sometimes yeah. that means this, the relationship ends. Oh, tell me. I have couples on Dr. Phil where at the end I say, you people need to get a divorce before dark today. <laughs> you shouldn't go home together. Right. You should not take the same airplane. <laughs> right. You should go separate yeah, directions. You leave first and then he yeah. can leave after 15 yeah. minutes. You should have never yeah. gotten married. Wow. It's astounding to me mm -hmm. how people sometimes will devote so much emotional energy and so much pain to somebody that they just pretty much married at random. But I can tell you it's because it matches up with a childhood experience. Yeah. And as somebody with a lot of childhood experience, you know, trauma that I couldn't possibly have resolved, um, it just takes years and a lot of work. I had to be in it to work through it. Yeah. Are you married now? I am not. Do you think you will again? Um, you know, it's interesting. I ended a relationship about six months ago at, of six years. And I think the reason I ended it is because I could see that I didn't really want to get married. And it's not that getting married is a goal for me, but if I want to live in my house and you live in your house, there's something missing. And you know, we had done a lot of work on the relationship. There was a lot of willingness there. But in the end, I had to acknowledge to myself, I was basically that guy who's like, why do we have to change anything? Everything's fine. And I could hear myself saying that going, hmm, this isn't right. And it wasn't that I just ended the relationship like that. It was more that I could, you know, I sort of if things aren't like a uh, abusive situation, I actually do not move until I'm sure. You know, I don't like get an idea and carry it out. That's what I did when I was younger. But if you know anyone, Dr. Phil, I yeah. am open. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I have a list here. Do you? Okay. <laughs> well, listen, I'm looking for somebody who, who is secure functioning is willing to do the work. Yeah. <laughs> you say that men are way more committed to relationships than women are. Yeah, I don't know. I think what I said is that, first of all, women file for divorce 70% of the time. And I think in our our season, this season of family or fiance, the men are much more committed than they were in the first, in our first group of episodes. And I think maybe that got a little, but I will say this, men do not leave the same way women do, okay? And I'm going to give you my theory on that. 
Why do women file for divorce 70% of the time? I think it's because women who are unhappy in a relationship are much more unhappy than men who are unhappy in a relationship. I think men can compartmentalize. I think they can f- throw themselves into their work or their sports or their whatever and their hobbies and they'll, they'll be like, okay enough to stay. So they tend to not need to go the same way a woman, it feels like desperate and starving and hungry and like, oh, this is so painful when she's unhappy in a relationship over a long period of time. Yeah, that's true of some men. And there's financial aspects of it as well. Mm-hmm. My theory is the only thing worse than being in a bad relationship for a year is being in a bad relationship for a year and one day. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. I have come to understand or believe that our need to be connected to people is so profound that we will stay in a bad relationship. Some people will even stay in an abusive relationship. Oh, it's the devil you know. I mean, people get there and... But people don't want to be alone. Not because, you know, a woman needs a fish like a like needs a man, like a fish needs a bicycle or whatever that saying is. I actually think that's a lie. I think actually women need men and men need women. People need people. People need primary attachment relationships. People need to pair bond. And we're not going to talk anybody out of that. So it's really about how do we have better, healthier, more fulfilling relationships. You believe in monogamy? Um, Sure. I mean, I want monogamy. Um, but do I believe, again, I go right to the home perm, you know, there's a bunch of people who they don't really need that. I'm not one of them. You just got to know who you are. Now, I think some people, cause I look at a lot of evolutionary biology, like let's imagine that over the course, you know, 20,000 years ago, there was a tribe and in your tribe of a hundred people, you want like 10 guys who go all over the place and you want 10 guys who really do want to just stay in the village and like make sure everything's going great in the village and hunt for the village and stay with those women. And then you've got 10 women who just want to go all over the place and you've got a whole bunch of women who don't. So I feel like when people try to just say it's all or nothing, like human beings aren't monogamous. I mean, clearly many human beings are monogamous and some are not, are not. You know, I think we like this concept that like men have to spread their seed around, but we don't understand that their women are the same way. You know, there's hunters and farmers. This is my theory. (laughs) There's hunters and farmers. And then there's huntmers. (laughs) I'm probably one of those. (laughs) It's like, you just got to know who you are. And I've been with, I've married two farmers. Those are great men. Those are great men. Are they going to be president of the United States? Probably not, but they are great, great men. And then there's hunters. Hunters are awesome. They might be president of the United States, but are they going to like kick it with you the way a farmer will? No. So you just have to know you're not going to have it both ways. That's, I think, what people really need to come to. There's going to be some choices. You're going to choose this kind of partner or that kind of partner. And it's not fair to look at, you know, if you get like, the farmer guy and go, I want you to go hunting. No, you have to love that farmer. And likewise with your hunter. Well, give me your take on this relationship wise. I'm concerned that when I'm much older than you. I don't know about that. But, well, yeah, <laughs> take it from me. But 
when I was growing up, the internet right. wasn't even a gleam in somebody's eye. Right. And television, mm-hmm. there were three channels. Right. Very conservative television. Yeah. I mean, Gunsmoke, mm-hmm. I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Welk. There was, I mean, absolutely <laughs> yeah. nothing provocative on television mm-hmm. whatsoever that would lead young people to make their minds wander okay. or go there. Now, I've seen studies where the sexual innuendo in sitcoms or whatever right. is like one every 30 or 45 seconds. Right. What you see visually on network television is very provocative. And we have kids that are going into social mm-hmm. media. They're meeting people. That's They're disturbing. not learning Mm-hmm. relationship skills yeah. like you say having people hold eye contact for yeah. just a short period of time is a meaningful experience for people because yeah. they don't do it anymore mm-hmm. and so now i think what is happening is we're having kids that are jumping from really puberty childhood mm-hmm. to fully sexually engaged intimate relationships when they didn't fill in the steps along the way yeah. And they're not prepared for this. They get much deeper than they should be, and they come crashing down. What's going to happen to this generation of people that Mm -hmm. are not developing social skills, relationship skills, because everything is electronic? Yeah. And human skills, relationship skills Mm -hmm. are really atrophying Mm -hmm. in our society. What's going to happen to relationship skills? Well, I think you've said so many things right there. I have a 22-year-old son, so I'm like right smack in the middle of this. Um, I would say, first of all, the teen pregnancy rate has gone down by some crazy number, like 60 or 70% over the last 20 years. The, The real thing is that kids are not having sex the way they used to. Like the way people had sex when I graduated from high school in 1982, everybody was having sex. Now they're not. It's like they don't drive either. They're just growing up much more slowly. Okay, so they're probably going to live to be 117. So maybe it's maybe it all works itself out in the end. The other thing I would say is I'm not sure what the sexualized content does to kids. I almost think it makes them shut down because I look at the 60s. Well, look at what happened. We had all this very conservative TV and then you had this giant boomer generation that went out and started, you know, everything we know of as the 70s, which was really, you know, way, way more out there than these kids are. Can I just say though, I raised a kid in a whole group of kids in Los Angeles and they were pretty sane. I watched Euphoria the other day. Have you seen it? I watched a little bit of yeah, it. I thought it was pretty out there. Much. It is. I thought it was pretty I, out there. I spent a lot of years in TV news writing the uh, phrase, it's a parent's worst nightmare. Okay. And I feel like there's a lot of parent's worst nightmare porn out there where people are just binging on the parent's worst nightmare. Like, I never heard of this thing. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying I don't think that the real problem out there is, you know, whatever, what, you know, anal sex. I don't think that that's what teenagers are doing. I have a son who loves his video games and is in a long-term committed relationship with a young woman. And they are, I feel like this generation is going to 
get married and settle down because they don't need to do all that stuff that our generation, well, I'm not putting myself in the same generation, but that my generation needed to do. We felt like we needed 20 years of like unfettered, you know, moving to New York City and doing whatever we wanted. And I don't feel like they need, they need that. So I think, yes, there are some kids out there doing whatever, but I actually feel like this generation has an opportunity. I, I feel like they're more grounded you know that there's an opportunity for them to connect more deeply because they're not doing that now the screens are a thing no question about that there's certainly different stimulus material than we had it's true and i mean to me one of the great things that people don't talk about issues of our time is pornography and the fact of the matter is we think we worry about drugs but most kids are exposed to pornography long before they are exposed to drugs. And that to me is very disturbing. I sometimes feel that we are going to look back on this time, like we look back on cigarettes in the 40s and go like, well, everybody was doing it. We thought it was fine. But I do think it burns out people's reward centers and it makes real life real life is never going to be whatever is happening when people, you know, turn on their computer and go to wherever they go. Well, and the thing with the computers, these kids, I mean, from like six, eight years old, they are so yeah. versed on the computer. Yeah, they are. The adult generation has the wisdom, but not the knowledge. The kids right. have the knowledge, but not the wisdom. Yeah. So you can put all these guards on the happen. computers. It's those true. kids, they click around. That's There's true. There's three clicks from anything they want. So true. Including buying stuff. Yeah. And whatever, Fortnite or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. It's a real thing. And I mean, their generation is going to have to come to terms with that. The way we have to come to terms. Like it's part of the human experience to have some sort of mass experience that you have to come to terms with. And that's going to be part of theirs. Well, you premiere season two. Well, it's basically an extension of season one, technically. But yes, it's our next set of episodes. It's the spring season? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. But it's January 11th. Yes. It's on Saturday nights yep. at 9 p.m. Eastern mm -hmm. and Pacific. Tell us what to expect that's going to be exciting. You know, what, you're, what you can expect is to watch people really diving into both their families and their relationships and making connections between the two. And then also, I think there is a lot of hope in our show. People work a lot of stuff out in these three days. There are tears, there's laughter. It's the, it's the human experience. Well, what I think about it from, and I've spent some time looking at this and, and seeing what's going on, and I think two things about it have really jumped out at me. One is that it really challenges the generational legacy. Mm -hmm. It makes you really realize that you don't have to carry forward That's right. what has been foisted on you. That's right. And number two, I think it is very thought-provoking for the viewer. I don't think you can watch this and walk mm -hmm. away from it and not think about, how is this mirrored in my family? 100%. How is this mirrored yeah. in the way I'm being an in-law or a parent or how I'm being in-lawed and parented. That's right. I mean, I think it's very thought-provoking. It is. I mean, it, it really will confront you in ways, in a good way, you know? 
Yeah, it really causes you to think. And yeah. Oprah and I always said in all the shows we've done together, which just on the Oprah show and then other shows we've done together, we've always said what you want to hear is, I never thought of it that way. Mm. I think a lot of people watching this are going to yes. say, I never thought of it yes. that way. And that's the money shot right that's there. That's right. Yes. So, well, congratulations Thank on this you. show. It's a huge success. Thank you. This is one of those things that I think you can honestly say is the highest and best use of television because it really it's family, is. it's relationship, it's marriage, and it's given people a strong takeaway. I hope you're really proud of this. You should be. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate me. it. Thanks, Dr. Phil.